He didn't want to be there, but there he was. He didn't deserve to be there. But our man Daniel was a captive in Babylon. His only fault was that he was born at the wrong time in the wrong place, but none of us get to choose our generation. He was a godly man in a godless world, and for that, he had to suffer. You see, when God moved in to correct his faithless people, Daniel felt the whip as well. And being of noble birth, having tremendous gifts, intelligent, he was uh, gifted as a speaker, insight into mysteries, having all of these things, none of that kept him back from experiencing the judgment aimed at others simply because he was close. Taken away from his home, hundreds of miles, a captive in a foreign city, never to return home. I could get pretty bitter about that. How about you? I mean, I could get pretty upset. Now, wait a minute. This is unfair. I don't deserve this. Surely, God, you're going to bless the righteous. Surely, my faithfulness means something. You're not going to let me die out in this heathen land. You're going to come to my rescue, right? Bring me home quickly, right? And God says, no. No, I've got another plan for you. You know, I cannot justify what is going on in our world whether we look at the horrible pandemic that we have been enduring for almost a year now, or the unparalleled political craziness that has been going on, it boggles my mind. But after all, when God comes in judgment, that's going to be on other people. It's not going to be on those who are seeking to follow his will and walk in his ways. Surely God is going to recognize that we are right and rescue us from the wickedness around us and insulate us from the punishment that comes upon others, right? No. Apparently God has other plans. And you and I, you and I must endure the troubled times of God's whip upon our world simply because we're in close proximity. You see, his plan is to accomplish his perfect will. His plan is to display his glory. His plan is to bring in his kingdom at his time, according to his pace. And well, yes, he loves us beyond comprehension. His purpose is far greater than us. Our plans to prosper and have it easy don't fit in to the divine plan of accomplishing his perfect will. And so here we are in Babylon, <laughs> captive. Craziness all around us. Don't you want to just scream? Is anyone sane in this world? And also, often we feel the answer is no. <laughs> Not even me. But there is a God in heaven who rules. And nothing has surprised him. There is a God in heaven who's in control. And nothing intimidates him. 
And he's going to continue to work about his perfect plan. We just need to learn how to live in Babylon. And so I think for us to go to the book of Daniel, to find some lessons from Daniel and his amazing three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, their Hebrew names, although it was the, the protocol of a heathen dynasty when they brought captives in to give them all names that reflected their God, not the God that these people used to serve. So Daniel is Belteshazzar, and you have the more familiar names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all pointing to Bel, the great god of the Babylonians. Let me just give you a little bit of history, uh, a little bit of summary of chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can per turn to Daniel chapter 3. They're taken captive. Judah is all the way to Babylon in 586 B.C. There were probably three different um, waves of captivity at three different times. Most likely Daniel was in the last. But when we get to Daniel chapter 3, King Nebuchadnezzar, who is an arrogant uh, individual, he uh, thinks highly of himself more than anyone else. We rarely have political leaders like this, do we? Who, who are so caught up with themselves that they don't see anything outside of themselves. So he builds this obelisk, this image based on a dream that he had. The image is 90 feet high and only 9 feet wide. But it grabs the attention of everyone. He summons in verse 2 of chapter 3 the satraps and perfects and governors and all the provincial leaders of the area to come to the dedication of the image. And when they come, Nebuchadnezzar reveals his plan. He says... This is my command to you when you hear the music. And the music sounds very interesting. I would like to know what type of genre the music is with a zither in there and pipe and all. Might have been a weird sound, but when you hear the music, you bow and worship. Or you worship the image when you hear the music. And if you don't bow, you're thrown into a furnace. So they heard the music and they bowed, verse 7, except for some obstinate Jews. The Chaldeans, the astrologers, noticed that the Hebrews were not bowing when they were supposed to. I tell you, the world is shocked when we don't bow to their music. And nor will we, by the grace of God. They'll play it. Bow. Dance for us. Believe in our gods. And we should say, we're in Babylon, but we're not of Babylon. No. We won't bow. By the way, up to this point, these guys had been amazingly gracious and flexible in fitting into this heathen kingdom. Note that important point. It was finally when they were given a command that they could not, with good conscience, follow that they became defiant. So, Nebuchadnezzar is furious with rage in verse 13, when he hears that these guys that he has treated in a special way, almost like his sons, his favorite students, he says, is it true? Incredulous. Can, can it be that after all the kindness I've shown you, you will not bow to my music? 
You will not fit in. I cannot believe that you will not genuflex when I command you to worship my gods. Let me give you another chance, verse 15. And if you don't bow, let me remember. If you don't bow, you burn. And what kind of God can deliver you from this, from my hand? So I don't know who the spokesman was, Hananiah, Mishael, whoever it was. They, they said, you know what, we don't need any time. We've got our answer for you right now, king. The trio replied, verse 17, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us. And he will deliver us. Verse 18. But if he doesn't, has that ever caused, caused you to smile? I mean, make up your mind. Is God able to deliver us from any situation that we are thrown into? Answer class? Absolutely. Will God deliver us from every situation of evil that we're thrown into? Most of American Christians say, absolutely. He will deliver us from the wrath to come. Now, theologically, that may be true about a great tribulation. But ask some of the believers who are living in different parts of the world right now who are being beheaded in skin for their faith if they feel like they're being delivered. You see, we think we, we ought to get it easy. But God's got a greater plan in mind. So I love this balanced theology. He is able, and he will. But if he doesn't, we're not bowing. So they made the furnace seven times hotter, and the strongest soldiers that were found threw them into the furnace. In their royal robes, verse 21, in their turbans, they were thrown in. And the fire was so hot that the strong, strongest soldiers in the army got close to the flames and died. They were firmly tied when they were thrown in. You say, okay, so that's very interesting for a day gone by, but what does it mean for us? Well, I'll tell you what it means for us. There are some amazing lessons here focused on the benefits that you and I can derive from tribulation. Fruit that comes to us from the fire. Let me just briefly mention a few. Number one, this trial that you're in is going to reveal the presence of God to you in an amazing way. And that makes it worth it all. Verse 24, King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men tied up that we threw into the furnace? Certainly, your majesty. Well, I see four. I'm not that good at math, but I realize that doesn't add up. And the fourth one looks like one of the sons of the gods. That is fascinating to me. Well, I think it was the son of God. Later on in verse 28, he says it's an angel who is there. And Jesus often appeared in the Old Testament as uh, the angel of the Lord. I think this is Jesus. But whatever the situation in the midst of their trial, they see Christ like they've never seen him before. You see, the promise from God is, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Never. The Great Commission has added to it. 
I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And when we're in the hottest trial that we're ever going to face, Jesus is there and often displays himself, reveals his special presence in ways we've never seen before. I would wish I could be a little more mystical than I am. That I would have some of those subjective experiences that so many other believers talk about. But I've had precious few. I've never seen Jesus. I've never heard his voice. And that's okay because I've got his voice in the word. And he's promised he's always going to be there. But wouldn't you just like a little more? <laughs> Yet in my trials, Jesus says, here I am, and shows up in amazing ways. It was Stephen, Stephen, the first martyr of the church. Hey, this is interesting, isn't it? How come he wasn't delivered? God delivered many people during those apostolic days, but he didn't deliver Stephen. Stephen was killed for the faith. But what happened after he gave a great defense and a review of Hebrew history of the Abrahamic covenant and the purpose of God and the kingdom of God? He looked up to heaven and saw Jesus. <laughs> and then he was with Jesus. Because Jesus shows up. In Acts chapter 12, James is killed by Herod with a sword. And in Acts chapter 12... Peter's arrested because Herod saw that pleased the Jews, but Herod was released, divinely so, by an angel. I'm sure glad God doesn't sit down with us like a coach does a football team and says, okay, here's the plan. You're going to sacrifice your life and you're going to survive. <laughs> I don't think I'd like that. But I want you to know that his plan is perfect. And as much as I don't enjoy it at the time, as much as the tribulation for the moment is painful, it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness for the glory of Christ. And that's really why I live. Not for comfort, but for his glory. Someone said, the hotter the fire, the sweeter the fellowship. Always look for the figure of Christ in the flames. For he is there. And the trial which is so unwelcoming to us bears a glorious gift. Intimate fellowship with the Son of God drawn into the circle of the one who was and is and is to come. That's a great blessing. A second blessing I see in this story, a second benefit from the trials, is that your trial is going to display God's power in some way and in some fashion. It may be your deliverance, or it may be the proclamation of the gospel with greater power. Now we know that these guys were delivered. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar approached the opening of the blazing furnace, which apparently had an opening on ground level and then was elevated somewhat and they dropped the guys in at the top when flames are coming out licking uh, the sides of the furnace. But Nebuchadnezzar looked at the side and he shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. And they came out and everyone crowded around 
couldn't believe it. I wouldn't believe it either. But notice this. The fire did not harm their bodies, verse 27. Their hair was not singed. Their robes not scorched. And you couldn't even smell fire on them. Why, if you put a log in the fire in the evening, you smell that good smell of a log burning. You sit around a campfire, and it's there on your clothes, maybe for days. These guys didn't even smell like fire. You say, what does that mean? It means our God can do anything he wants to do and displays his awesome power. They were defiant in faith, but they deferred to the will of God. Notice the difference. Be strong in your faith but be totally surrendered to God. He is able. He will. But if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. And so the Lord tells us that sometimes we have the experience of Isaiah 43. The Lord who created you and formed you, O Israel, don't be afraid. I have summoned you by my name and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they'll not sweep over you. And when you walk through the fire, you'll not be burned. And the flames will not set you ablaze. Isaiah 41, 1 and 2. And in a sense, that's always true in every one of our trials. Because even if we lose our life physically, we gain spiritual life that never ends. Even if we lose physical possessions, we gain possessions that can never be corrupted. So we've got to start living life with eternity's values in view. Remember that old praise chorus? Need to stop living for this world and live for the kingdom to come while we're in this world. But his power is going to be displayed. It's interesting when you follow the life of the apostle Peter, he was quite weak when Jesus wasn't around, but when Jesus was around, he was bold. Jesus getting arrested, Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest, but Jesus leaves, and then Peter says to a little servant girl, I don't know Jesus, I'm not part of that group, and even calls down oaths to prove that he's telling, or wanted people to believe he was telling the truth. Nebuchadnezzar said, what God can rescue you from my hand, verse 15 and verse 28. Wow, that was a rescue. That's amazing, the mighty power of God. Now, had they not stood true to the faith, have they, had they bowed like everyone else, there would have been no discernible difference in their lives. And there would have been no impact on the heathen king. Rescued. Has God ever rescued you in your life from near death? I'm sure the answer is yes, even though you may not know it. Some of you know it, right? You can tell the story. As David said, I was in the clutches of death and you pulled me out and rescued me. But I dare say every one of us has been saved at one time or another Maybe in that mystic, unseen world where God has stepped in to rescue us by his amazing power. So this trial 
will reveal his presence. And this trial will display his power. And thirdly, this trial will compound his praises or multiply his praises. Because now we have a heathen king, Nebuchadnezzar, saying in verse 28, Praise be to the God of this dynamic trio. Is it not interesting? This heathen king, polytheistic, unconverted, is impressed in chapter 1 with the character of these young men. In chapter 2, he is amazed at the insight given to Daniel with dreams. In chapter 3, he is bowled over by the power of God to rescue from the flames. And I believe in chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar gets converted. I mean, that's about the only way you can interpret the passage. And here's one step in the conversion process. You and I don't know that our trials are proclaiming the gospel as with a loudspeaker to the watching world around us who is just looking for a genuine Christian somewhere. Gandhi was right when he said all of India would be in the hands of Christians if Christians live like Jesus. I think he was right. We have no idea the impact that we would have if we simply lived like Jesus. When believers display great calm in the fire, God receives great praise from the heathen. That's what this trial says. They may not want to blurt it out, but they're going to acknowledge in their hearts, this is true. This is true. Interesting, the first decree that Nebuchadnezzar gave was that he would destroy all those who didn't worship the image. The second decree he gives is he's going to destroy all those who don't worship the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What a change. What happened? God used his servant in the midst, his servants in the midst of difficulty to reveal his power, his presence, and his this world does not praise God enough. The church doesn't praise God enough. But someday, someday, we will. Which leads us to the fourth and final benefit of trials. This trial is going to take us forward or work for our good. This trial has promotion in it. Verse 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this forward progress for these individuals was a civic position. They had already been given high levels of authority, and that's why others around were so jealous of them. But now they're pro promoted even to a higher level. And Daniel, while not here during this chapter, which is an interesting thing to contemplate, Daniel ends up being one of the most powerful people in all the kingdom. I like the fact that true believers can have authority even in wicked places. But the, the process or progress I'm talking about here, this promotion I'm talking about is spiritual maturation. Read about it in James chapter 1. Whenever you fall into various trials, count it all joy, knowing this, that the trying of your faith produces maturity. 
It grows you up in the faith. Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4 says the same thing. We delight in these difficulties we face. Not because our minds are twisted, but because we know what God is going to accomplish in and through them. We glory in our trials, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, perverse, perseverance, character, character, hope, and hope never disappoints. God is at work in you. We don't have an equipper's class for it because all of you are already enrolled in Trials 101. Some of you are graduate students and you're in Trials 401. Pastor Doug mentioned it before, the providence of God in the lives of some of you people amazes us because of your faith in the midst of almost impossible circumstances. And you may not do all you want to do or accomplish all that you set out to do, but God is working in you for his glory and his megaphone is touching the world around you. And we have an opportunity to shine in the midst of a very dark day. Do I wish it were different? Yes, I wish righteousness ruled, but it doesn't. Not now. I find it interesting that I'm commanded to pray for my rulers in 1 Timothy chapter 2 so that I might live a quiet and peaceful life. And I'm praying that prayer. However, at other times, God sets our little vessel out into the stormy sea and our life becomes an amazing adventure. Can you not change your perspective that man plans his way, but God directs his steps, and boy, this is going to be exciting. It's not what I wanted, but this is going to be amazing. Can we not change our perspective? God demands us to do so. He can save us. He will save us. But if he doesn't, I pray for peace, but if it's not peace and righteousness ruling in our land, then I pray for God to use these trials in an amazing way to capture hearts. And by the way, that's what he, he is doing right now. The, flame, the flames have a purifying effect. Did you notice that they went tied up into the furnace and they came out unbound? Sometimes it's the trials you and I face that are the very thing that God uses to free us from the things that bind us. Put us through a good furnace of fire and he consumes the dross and purifies the gold and maybe your trial is the means for you to find deliverance from the very thing that you've battled with for so long and seems to have you in its clutches. Maybe this is God's way of saying, okay, let's deal with this thing. But our prayer is, Lord, how can I get out? Instead of our prayer should be, what can I get out of this trial? The world wants to entice us into its pleasures. It plays its songs and it commands us to bow. It intimidates us with persecution if we don't. But God sends a trial along not to destroy us but to perfect us. He wants to mature us in grace and shower us with peace. He wants us to find fruit in the fire. Years ago, many years ago, 
It was the godly Samuel Rutherford who shouted in the midst of his painful difficulties, praise God for the hammer and the file and the furnace. I've noticed I'm very slow at praising God for the hammer and the file and the furnace. A.W. Tozer picked up on that great analogy and he said the hammer is a useful tool, but the nail, if it had feeling and intelligence, could present a whole other side of the hammer's story. For the nail knows the hammer only as an opponent, a brutal, merciless enemy who pounds it into submission, beats it down out of sight, and clenches it in place. That's the hammer's, the, the nail's only view of the hammer. That's all it can see. And sometimes our view is so earthbound we cannot see what God's doing beyond. The nail's view of the hammer, it's accurate up to a point. But the nail tends to forget this, said A.W. Tozer, that both the hammer and the nail are held by the same craftsman, working about the same purpose. If the nail could but remember this, resentment could quickly disappear. And then bit a bit of tongue-in-cheek. He says the carpenter decides whose head is going to be beaten next and what hammer is going to be used in the beating. That's the sovereign right of the carpenter. Now, lest you take this message in the wrong way and go out of here pessimistic, and boy, life is a lot of fun. Pastor Don told us our heads are going to get beaten in like right now. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying live according to the reality of the revealed word of God that we should not be surprised. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 12. Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you as though something strange has happened to you. Don't we always say, why me? That's a dumb question in light of 1 Peter 4. Don't think this is strange. This is common. And this fiery ordeal has come to test you. By the way, notice, trials come upon us. It's not unusual. Number two, they can be fiery ordeals. And number three, they're sent to test us. But rejoice, 1 Peter 4.13. Rejoice inasmuch as that you get to participate in the sufferings of Christ. So that you might be overjoyed when glory is revealed. What does that mean? It means this. If you're a Detroit Lions fan, you know something about suffering. And we have suffered, what, since the 50s? Their last championship, I think, was the year right after I was born. And I became a Lions fan, not because I chose to. I just happened to be born near Detroit. And I've suffered with that team a long time. And every year, this is true, every year I say I'm not going to do it. And the first game, I, I'm not going to get involved. And by the end, I am so involved. And then they lose it at the end. But if they were to win the Super Bowl, I know, unbelievable. But if they were, it's people like us who have suffered with them who will rejoice more than anyone else. 
And if you participate in the sufferings of Christ, he will be glorified. He will be magnified. And those who have participated in that suffering will rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Bank on that. California has experienced many horrible fires. Back in 1991, in October, there was a fire that destroyed 2,500 homes near the Oakland, California area. And the owners, when released to go back to their property, found all of their possessions in ashes. A minister went back to his home, and he found a, a porcelain vase, along with some other porcelain-type things that to his amazement survived the great fire. Everything else was burned, but this didn't. And he thought about that for a while. Because it was a pastor, he took that porcelain vase, the only surviving piece from his home, to church the next Sunday, set it up on the pulpit and said, why did all my possessions burn, but this is still here? And then he answered his own question, because this item has passed through the fire before. And if you know Jesus, you've passed through the fire before. And you will survive. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient, God says, will be your supply. The flame will not hurt you. My only design is your dross to consume. And your gold to refine. Let's pray. Lord, there are so many messages that a preacher must proclaim because it's true, even when their own personal experience does not always measure up. So, Lord, I pray that you will cause all of us to grow in grace, that we can somehow rejoice in our trials, see the fruit that's coming from the fire, and give you glory. Trust you in the darkest days that our light may shine. And if you deliver us, great. And if you don't, may the message of the gospel go forward with rich and great and moving power to bring our generation to the foot of the cross. And this we know, your word is always faithful, and you will never, ever leave us. For you said, I created you, I formed you, you are mine. You are called by my name, and I will never let you go. For a moment, deal with the Lord in prayer. Ask him to deal with your heart.
Heavenly Father, we live in a world that seems to be turned upside down, and yet we're so thankful that you are in control, that you have not relinquished your authority. Uh, you are God, sovereign over all, providential in your care for your creation and those who you have called to yourself. So thank you for these words of encouragement this morning from Pastor Don. I pray that they will resonate inside of us, that they will challenge us, that they will encourage us, Lord, that we will persevere in the, in the face of difficulties that are in all of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me leave you with a few announcements. As you saw earlier, the Equippers announcement starts this evening, and we invite you to join.